Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. Well, welcome lovers of product. Today, I'm here with Raul from Superhuman. Second time on the podcast, Raul. So why don't you just give us a quick overview of your background for anyone who hasn't heard part one or the first one, since they aren't really that related, but give them a quick overview and then we'll jump into our our conversation for today, which is going to be game design. Sure. Well, thank you for having me back again. So as for my background, back in the day, I founded a company called Reportive, which was the first Gmail plugin to scale to millions of users. In 2012, we sold that to LinkedIn, where it grew into LinkedIn Sales Navigator. And today, I'm now the founder and CEO of Superhuman, where we make the fastest email experience in the world. Most of our users end up getting through their inbox about twice as fast as before, and many of them see inbox zero for the first time in years. So we're back on to talk about game design, right? Like I mentioned. So explain to the users out there, you know, kind of the the basic tenets of game design and why you're interested in this topic. Well, Superhuman is productivity software, but I'm really a gamer at heart. And today, our business software feels like work. We have to check our email. We have to submit expense reports. We have to enter data in our CRM. But the question that I've been asking is, what if we could make software feel less like work and more like play? With game design, we can. And many years ago, I actually used to be a professional video game designer. So I'm bringing a lot of what we learned in that field over to building Superhuman. So take me through a little bit what game design has to do with product management or even more broadly the way tech companies are building products these days. And I I think you touched on some of it that it's like we have to take this idea of work and make it more fun. Yeah, exactly. I, I think the way that most tech companies are building products these days is that we worry about what users want or what users need. But if you think about it, Nobody needs a game to exist. There are no requirements. When you make a game, you don't worry about what users want or need. Instead, you obsess over how they feel. Because when your product is a game, people don't just use it, they play it. They find it fun, they tell their friends, they fall in love with it. And so game design turns out to be an altogether different kind of product development. So the natural question then becomes, what game design is, and I think before we jump into that, we should probably talk about what it isn't. And that is to say, game design is not gamification. Yeah, so tell us about the differences between game design and gamification. Well, it's not simply taking your product and adding points, levels, trophies, or badges, and to sort of think this through, let's cast our mind back 10 years ago. 10 years ago, gamification was a big deal. I remember Kleiner Perkins saying that half of all of their consumer pitches mentioned gamification. But it didn't work and it didn't stick. And to understand why, we actually have to understand human motivation. And there's a really cool experiment that exemplifies this. 
In the 1970s, researchers from Stanford recruited children. They were aged roughly three to four years old. And all of these kids were generally interested in drawing. Now, some kids were told they would get a reward, a certificate with a gold seal and a ribbon. And some kids were not told about any reward. So they did not expect one or even know of one. And each kid was invited into a separate room to draw for six minutes. And then afterwards, they would either get the reward or not. And over the next few days, the children were observed to see how much they would continue to draw by themselves. Now, the children with no reward spent 17% of their time drawing. But the children who expected a reward, they only spent 8% of their time drawing. The reward had halved their motivation. So what's happening here? Well, researchers differentiate intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. With intrinsic motivation, we do things because they are inherently interesting and satisfying. With extrinsic motivation, we do things to earn rewards and achieve external goals. And that's the problem with rewards. They massively undermine intrinsic motivation. And that is why gamification does not work. When gamification does work, it's because the underlying experience was already a game. So then the question becomes, how do you design a good game? That is a good question. How do you design a good game? Well, that's something I've been obsessed with basically my entire life. As a kid, I learned to code just so I could make games. And before I was a founder, like I said, I worked as a game designer. And as a founder, I've gone deep into the principles of game design. And as it turns out, there is no unifying theory of game design. To create games, we need to draw upon the art and science of disparate fields like psychology, mathematics, storytelling, and interaction design. At Superhuman, we've identified five key factors to really focus on, and they are goals, emotions, controls, toys, and flow. Okay. Can you expound on each of those? Let's jump into that. Sure. So uh, why don't we take one? Let's take emotions, for example. The best games create strong emotions because strong emotions are the foundation of our memory. To paraphrase the saying, people will forget what your product does, but they will never forget how it made them feel. We must therefore be able to analyze emotion. What do users feel? Why do they feel that way? And to do that, we need a vocabulary. Now, there are many models of human emotion. The most famous, perhaps, is Plutchik's wheel. You've probably seen this wheel before. Opposite emotions are across from each other. For example, joy is opposite grief. And you can actually blend adjacent emotions to create more complex feelings. For example, when you combine joy and anticipation on this wheel, you get optimism. And rather beautifully, when you combine joy and trust, you get love. But as game designers, we need much richer vocabulary than academia provides because the emotions we are aiming for are much more nuanced. A useful model I found is the emotion wheel by the Hunto Institute, and it contains the subtleties that we really need to think about. For example, as superhuman, we care deeply about joy. And joy has many sub-emotions. For example, we design for enthusiasm and excitement. Our users come to us super excited. We design for optimism and hopefulness. Our users genuinely want superhuman to improve their lives. We design for pride and triumph. For when you hit inbox zero, especially if it's the first time in years, 
you rightly feel like you accomplished something special. And when you do, we show you stunning and gorgeous imagery. Why? To widen the emotional repertoire beyond joy into love and into surprise. So zooming out, the principle here is this, design for nuanced emotion. Precisely which emotions do you want? Which do you want to avoid? And you can use the emotion wheel as your guide. So take me a little bit deeper into that. You talked about, you know, going back a little bit, intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic. You've talked about the emotions, you know, tied to making game design successful. So how do product managers apply that to their software? How do they make this delightful? How do they appeal to their people's intrinsic motivations? One of the ways that we can do that is by using this notion called resonance. And resonance is a facet of game design I picked up from the best book on the topic, The Art of Game Design by Jesse Schell. And in this book, he highlights two kinds of resonance, fantasy and truth. An experience has a resonant fantasy when it resonates with our desires and our dreams. For superhuman, it could be the fantasy of having superpowers. And who doesn't want that? It sounds both liberating and exhilarating. But there is something more powerful than even fantasy, and that is truth. And in his book, Jesse gives the example of the movie The Titanic. Why is this movie so compelling? It is not the effects or the execution or the performances, great though these are. It is because the movie has a resonant truth that is constantly reinforced. And that is this. Love is more important than life and stronger than death. Now, most of us don't go around saying that all of the time, but the reason this movie is so compelling is because most of us actually believe this. It is the kind of belief that we keep buried deep down inside of us. So then the question first became, what is the resonant truth behind superhuman? Or in other words, what is something that we deeply believe but rarely express. And for a product like ours, it would probably involve efforts and attainment. And our first attempt at defining this was something like this. I am what I do. Now that's kind of getting there, but it sounds like our work is defining us, which doesn't actually sound all that healthy and really isn't accurate. And so then we tried a different statement, which is, I deserve to succeed. Now, that has some of the right vibes, like striving for success, but some of the wrong ones as well, like success should come to us all. I don't think any of us deeply believe that. Maybe it's more about deserving the chance to be successful. And so where we landed was, if I work hard enough, I can achieve anything. And there we have it. The fascinating thing about that sentence is it would never come out of a user study. But it is a powerful truth that all of our users deeply believe. And so if you're a product manager or you're a product designer or a user researcher trying to unlock the fundamental motivations behind your product, ask yourself this. What is something that all your users deeply believe but rarely express? That's good. That's good. So one of the things, Raul, you talk a lot about is is talking about making your product into a toy and that we should consider if our product really is fun. You know, so talk to me about why they should be fun. Why is it not enough that our customers just find success 
through our products? Why do they also have to have fun? The desire our users have for fun is a sea change that's happening in almost every piece of software that we use. And it's the natural conclusion of the consumerization of the enterprise. So think about it this way. If you don't make your products fun, your competitor will make their products fun. And this is in part what Slack did to HipChat and all other chat competitors. Now, toys are a very interesting and specific kind of fun. In particular, toys are not the same as games. You see, we play with toys, but we play games. A ball is a toy, but football is a game. And as it turns out, the best games are built with toys. Why? Because then they are fun on multiple levels, the toy and the game itself. Now, to understand this in a business context, I'll give another superhuman example. In our product, a favorite toy is what we call the time autocompleter. It's the box that you use to snooze emails. So you press a keyboard shortcut, a little box appears. You can type in whatever you want. It can even be gibberish. And the software does its best to understand you. For example, if you type in 2D, it becomes two days. If you type in 3H, it becomes hours. 1MO becomes one month. This time autocompleter is fun because it indulges playful exploration. What can it do? Where does it break? And how does it work? I've done hundreds of onboardings myself, and I see this in almost every single one. It's not long before people start playing with it. They're asking themselves things like, hmm, I wonder what happens if I keep on typing 10. Well, it turns out that's October the 10th at 10, 10 p.m. Or they might say, what about the sequence of twos? Well, that's February the 2nd, 2022 at 2 p.m. And then they might say, well, let me try a more complex input. I once had a user type in, in a fortnight and a day, and they were delighted that it just worked. And it's not long before they find pleasant surprises. For example, you can type in 8 a.m. in Tokyo, literally that string, and it will do the time zone math for you. You can even type in funny things like whenever, and it will snooze the email such that it never actually comes back. And, you know, that always gets a laugh out of our users. So to our listeners, I'd say this. Consider every feature of your own product. Does that feature indulge playful exploration? Is it fun even without a goal? And does it create moments of pleasant surprise? If so, congratulations, because you have a toy and you can assemble these toys into fun games. You know, it's interesting taking this to an, an aside a little bit. You know, I've, uh, I haven't used Superhuman yet, right? I always looked at it and I said, you know, Gmail, I'm not, I don't have such a throughput of need on email that I feel overwhelmed with using Gmail. But now I'm at the point where kind of like, I feel like I'm missing out on Superhuman, not from the aspect of just being more productive, but from the aspect of the fun part of it. Is that unusual? No, I don't think that's unusual at all. We all fundamentally desire to play. We all want to have fun. And if you want to get philosophical for a moment, I think one of the saddest things about modern life, perhaps this is Western life, is as we quote-unquote grow up and we become adults, less and less of our days is devoted to having fun. 
And that's something that I try to counteract in my personal life. I regularly play video games. I, we can talk about this later. I, I design games outside of Superhuman. But where is the fun in our lives? I'd argue that there isn't enough and we should be adding more to it. I like it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that into account. I think uh, I'm going to sign up for Superhuman too. It's this moment right here <laughs> pushed me over the edge. So let's take this in a slightly different direction. Let's, let's talk about the onboarding process and products and, and how that relates to game design. You know, when we think about onboarding, you know, as a product person, that's kind of the first touch point. It's that first impression. And, and just like, you know, dating, it's extremely important. So should we be designing our onboarding processes a little bit differently? Should we think about it in a way that takes users to value as soon as they're in the product? Do we also have to incorporate some of that, you know, fun into that first experience? What are, what are your thoughts on onboarding processes? Well, absolutely. Time to value is super important. But from a game design perspective, I think we can and should be doing even more. For example, how about mean time to delight? We know from earlier that we need to be incredibly deliberate about the emotions we want our users to experience. So perhaps there's an emotion that you can pick off the emotional wheel. Maybe it's triumph. What is the mean time to feeling triumph in an onboarding? We also know that toys are extremely important. A good onboarding should point out a few of the toys and let the user play with them. When I'm doing an onboarding, I always point out the time autocompleter. But perhaps the most critical part of an excellent onboarding is to set up the goal successfully. You see, games need goals. And I would go so far as to say that goals are a defining feature of games. But we can't just have any goals. We need good goals. And for a game, good goals are three things. They are concrete, achievable, and rewarding. And so in our superhuman onboardings, we set up a very concrete goal, which is to say, get to inbox zero. Now, it's not enough for the goal just to be as simple as concrete as that. They also must be achievable. And that's actually one of the main reasons why we do the onboardings. For those that don't know, we do a live concierge onboarding. This is a 30-minute one-to-one video call with one of our wonderful onboarding specialists. And during that call, we teach faster workflows to get to inbox zero. We teach powerful shortcuts. You never have to touch the mouse. And let's say you're really far away from inbox zero, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of emails. We wipe the slate clean so that you are within a stone's throw, thus making the goal more achievable. And finally... A good game goal should be rewarding. So when you hit inbox zero, you feel triumph over your email, and that's previously a rare and incredibly rewarding feeling. So as we zoom out and think about other business software, most business software does not have clear goals. And if there are goals, there are often unachievable and unrewarding. Think about firing up Excel and staring at that blank canvas. What is the goal? And when do you get that moment of satisfaction? So this becomes one of our core principles of game design, which is to say, if you want to build software like it's a game, then you have to start with creating goals that are concrete, achievable, and rewarding. And an onboarding call is the perfect time to cement that goal. Now, we're talking a lot about flow here, right? And in, in, in game design, you have that flow part of game design, which seems to be where games struggle the most, maybe it's the least understood. 
A hundred percent. Flow is the least understood part of game design, in part because it results in an extremely counterintuitive principle. And this is one of the biggest surprises that people have when they first get to grips with what game design really is. But first of all, we actually have to define flow. So colloquially, flow is what you and I would call being in the zone. It's the state of mind that has been heavily researched for decades. And the state of flow has six key components. And I'll touch upon these. I'll also touch upon the conditions to create flow. And that'll take us to a really counterintuitive conclusion. First of all, what is flow? So six things. Number one, it's the intense and focused concentration on the present. Number two, it is so absorbing that we don't think about the future or worry about the past. Number three, it's so demanding that we don't care what others think about us. Number four, it is so easy that we always know what to do next. Number five, it is so powerful that it alters our subjective experience of time. Time can either flash by in an instant or stretch out forever. And number six, and this is where it ties into that Stanford experiment, flow is so rewarding that the activity becomes intrinsically motivating, which as we know from before, is the most powerful and effective form of motivation. Now here's where it gets interesting. Researchers have also heavily investigated the conditions to create flow, and there are five. Number one, we must always know what to do next. Number two, we must always know how to do it. Number three, we must be free from distractions. Number four, we must get clear and immediate feedback on our actions. And number five, and this is the hardest of all, we must feel a balance between challenge and skill. If the activity is too hard, we will feel anxious. But if the activity is too easy, we will feel relaxed or bored. And none of those things is flow. Now, we do a lot in Superhuman to drive all five of these, but it is the fifth one that results in a counterintuitive outcome. Now, the researchers who've studied this have come up with a model called the experience fluctuation model. And this model describes how people feel with various levels of skill and challenge. And to keep things simple, let's say that your skill level can be low, medium, or high. And the challenge level can be low, medium, or high. And the nuance here is it's your perceived skill level and your perceived challenge level. And let's think about Gmail for a moment. Some people have or would perceive their skill level to be low to medium, but they're in a role where their email does not matter that much. And so the perceived challenge is also low. The experience fluctuation model says that these people will feel bored or apathetic. Now, some people have low to medium skill, but their email does matter. And so the challenge is medium. The model says that these people will feel worried. Some people have low to medium skill, but their email is super important. It's literally what their job revolves around. Now, their challenge is high. The experience fluctuation model says that these people will feel anxious. And this is actually how most users come to us when they have stopped using Gmail and they've just started using Superhuman. They're low to medium skill email, but their email is really, really important. And as a result, they feel anxious. Now, through our onboardings, we massively increase the skill level for almost everybody. But what if we stopped there? We would then end up in a situation where the level of skill actually exceeds the challenge at hand. 
And in those situations, the experience fluctuation model says that you will feel relaxed or in control, which sound good, but they are not flow. To experience flow, you need a greater challenge. Well then, and this is going to sound crazy, we increase the challenge level. We provide a challenging goal, hit inbox zero, but without ever touching your mouse. This balances high perceived challenge with high perceived skill and so results in flow. And the reason this is counterintuitive is that we as technology have had multiple generations of product managers and product designers who have been trying to make software easy to use and easy to learn. What I'm actually saying is that may be counterproductive if what we're actually trying to achieve is a state of flow. So Raul, you know, we got to the state of flow, but we also get to this idea of relaxed and the idea of relaxed, especially in today's day, sounds pretty good. So why flow versus relaxed? It comes back to what you were asking earlier, which is how do we, as folks who make products, understand and unlock the motivations of our users? How do we help them become intrinsically motivated? Now, part of it is the exercise around resonance, which we talked about earlier. But part of it is putting the brain into the actual physical state where it is experiencing intrinsic motivation. And that only happens in this very specific set of circumstances that researchers describe as flow. For sure, relaxation is a good thing. And just like we riffed earlier about our lives need more fun in them, I think we'd probably both immediately agree that our lives could probably do with more relaxation in them. But if what we're trying to unlock is intrinsic motivation, there is no real substitute for flow. Okay, that makes a lot of sense to me. It makes sense from the standpoint too that like, you know, even going back to games, right? When you get to this point where it's relaxing, it it also starts to become a little boring. You tend to start to make mistakes if it's consistently that way. And I can see where you're in the flow, so to speak, that you're just performing at a higher level. It feels like you'd be more creative at that point too, more capable of coming up with innovations, more thoughtful. Maybe I'm taking that a little too far. I don't think you're taking it too far at all. In fact, it's probably a good segue into a somewhat related topic, which are the various forms of pleasure that people feel when they play games. Because there is one form of pleasure where relaxation is the main goal. Game designer Mark LeBlanc articulated eight kinds of gaming pleasure. Number one, sensation. This could be visual, audio, touch, like the deliciously tactile click of a cherry keyboard that I think both of us would remember. Number two, fantasy. This is the pleasure of being somebody else in some other world. Number three, narrative, the pleasure of following a dramatic sequence of events. Challenge, which we just touched upon when talking about flow, the pleasure of increasingly difficult situations. Fellowship, the pleasure of social interactions, which is actually built into many of our collaboration products. Discovery is the pleasure of exploring uncharted territory. Expression is the pleasure of creation and building, which uh, both of our products actually serve. And one of the most interesting is the pleasure of submission, which Mark defines as passing time. 
And this has really been more of a recent phenomenon in the gaming industry. For the longest time, gaming was a fairly hardcore activity, relatively expensive, took place on high-end gaming PCs or on gaming consoles. It was a fairly expensive activity and hobby to buy into. And then, of course, there was the huge wave of casual and social gaming on phones and on Facebook. And this gaming pleasure of submission came to the forefront, the prime example being Farmville. Very few of the other gaming pleasures actually happen in a game like Farmville. There's not really much sensation, there isn't much fantasy, there's next to no narrative, there really isn't a challenge. There is fellowship, but there's little discovery and expression. So it really boils down to the pleasure of passing time and the pleasure of social interactions. Now, should we be building that into our business software? I think that's a philosophical discussion that, that we could potentially have. It's certainly not one that we build into Superhuman. In Superhuman, we try to focus on these other forms of pleasure, forms of, for example, feeling more powerful and more capable over time. So I'd like to jump in next to metrics, and I thought a good little segue into that was asking you about something you mentioned earlier. You mentioned, you know, having someone that had a million unread messages, and, you know, I, I have to admit, I have, as of right now, 359,130, which I thought was a high number, but you've actually seen people with a million. I have, yes. And this is a really curious phenomenon, which is we all have a strong desire to know how we are doing, to be scored, assessed, or judged, as it were. But it turns out that we don't want any kind of judgment. We want judgment that feels fair, useful, and motivating. And in business software, we often do not do this well. And the perfect example is that million email unread count. In most email products, you're constantly judged by that number. And for many of us, this is as high as tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. But yes, I've seen the occasional customer with millions of unread emails. And what I hear consistently is that this does not seem fair. Is that really a reflection of the user? Or was the email software itself also to blame? And past the fairness, it also doesn't seem that useful or that motivating. What should we do when we're faced with hundreds of thousands or even millions of unread emails? And so what we do in Superhuman, and this is a generally applicable principle, is that we simply stop showing that count beyond 1,000. Below 1,000, the judgment feels more fair. It's more likely to be a reflection of our own actions, and below 1,000, the judgment is much more useful or motivating. Using Superhuman, you can quickly work down to inbox zero in one session. So I would say this, our software is always judging our users. But when we're building it, we don't necessarily think about it in the way that a game designer would. And if we want to do that, simply ask ourselves this, what judgments is our product making? And do they feel fair? Do they feel useful? And do they feel motivating? And if you can't answer yes to all three of those things, I think it's worth retooling that judgment, perhaps even removing it entirely. I must admit, I, I never felt really bad about having 300,000 plus unread messages. I, I figured that 
It's either one system or the other. Either I had to get to zero or I could just let it keep growing. But that does lead us into this talk about metrics, right? So let's, let's talk about game design and metrics. What metrics are important? I think this comes full circle back to our last episode. Metrics like seat churn or dollar churn are far too laggy. By the time the user has churned out, it is too late to do anything. But the opposite, retention, isn't that helpful either. A user could be retained but frustrated or unhappy. Perhaps there aren't good alternative products or perhaps the user doesn't have time to churn out, but they do intend to do so later. And that is why I recommend the product market fit score, or in other words, the percentage of your users who would be very disappointed if they could no longer use the product. And as you know, we have a whole methodology around not just measuring the product market fit score, but also systematically increasing it over time. And it turns out that this methodology can even generate your roadmap for you. So let's talk a little bit about uh, you know, incorporating some of the things we've talked about today into SaaS products. What do you think is going to be the most difficult part of incorporating game design thoughts and principles into SaaS products for the product leaders out there listening today? I think the most difficult parts are the counterintuitive principles that result. For example, like I said, we have multiple generations of designers and product managers where we were taught to make software easy to learn and easy to use. But as we discussed, that just results in relaxation or control. It does not result in flow. It doesn't necessarily create the emotional states that we should be aiming for. It doesn't answer hard questions, like what is the resonant truth that underlies our product? If we want to make our business software feel as fun as games, and the prize for doing so is very big, it means that folks won't just use them, they'll play them, they'll find it fun, they'll tell their friends. Then we have to be willing to do things that may seem strange. For example, challenging our users, deliberately making our products harder to learn and more challenging to master. So what do you think will happen to SaaS companies when we begin to make products this way? Do you think we're going to get a spike in creativity, maybe more innovation, more productivity? You know, what does the future look like if you know, we make our products and if they incorporate a lot of the principles we talked about today? I think the changes will be gradual. I don't think any one thing is going to spike. We're not going to suddenly see a surge in innovation as a result of this. What I do think we will see is our software becoming increasingly less frustrating and increasingly more fun. And I think that will improve how we think about our work, the quality of our work, and hopefully the quality of our interactions with each other. I like that. I like where that's going. I like where your thoughts are going there, Raul. Now, if I'm a PM out there that's thinking about how to incorporate some of these ideas, where should I start? I'd recommend doing three things. Number one, read The Art of Game Design by Jesse Schell. It's the book that I referred to earlier. It's a comprehensive introduction to game design. I think it's hands down the best book on the topic. Number two, I would say regularly play games. Whether you play board games or video games, it doesn't really matter. But there's nothing like playing to stay sharp as a game designer. And number three, I would say consider some of the factors that we talked about today. Does your product have concrete, achievable, and rewarding goals? 
Are you designing for nuanced emotion? Have you created toys, i.e. objects that are fun to play with, that indulge playful exploration, that are fun even without a goal? Can you assemble those into your overall game design? And have you created the conditions for flow, including the hardest one of all, which is to balance high perceived skill with high perceived challenge? I think if you can answer yes to all or most of the above, you'll be well along the path to creating a really fun game. Shout out to Jesse Shell, you know, Carnegie Mellon guy, Pittsburgh guy, Shell Games. Love that recommendation. You know, now, Raul, you know, we've talked a lot about game design today. You've, you've done some work there in the past. I, I know you have a, a full-time job that's pretty busy, but uh, so I, I hate to even ask, or maybe I don't hate, but I hesitate to ask, you know, any plans to ever return to the gaming industry? Not really. Uh, I do think that can have a much bigger impact by what I'm doing at Superhuman. And I have just the right amount of gaming knowledge and productivity knowledge and how to be a founder knowledge to make Superhuman the dream job for me. I literally couldn't imagine doing anything else. I do run a regular tabletop D&D campaign, and that is a tremendous amount of fun. So I do get to exercise my game design muscles quite frequently, even outside of Superhuman. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, it's been a few years since I've played D&D. I, I think about getting back into it every once in a while, but I haven't yet. So who knows? I have to ask, you know, as we're, as we're finishing this up, what, what are your top three favorite games, whether it's video games, board games, you know, mobile games, maybe? I would have to say that my favorite game of all time is The Last Witcher game, which many of us will know was recently made into a hit Netflix TV show, which I was very happy to see got renewed for season two. And I'm currently playing Horizon Zero Dawn, which is a few years old at this point, but it's a narrative-driven action-adventure game on PlayStation. And like I just mentioned, I really love playing D&D. It's one of my favorite ways to relax and to have fun and to play a game. And that's true whether I'm the person running the game, as I am in one campaign, or as a player in somebody else's campaign, as I am in another. Awesome. I must say that Witcher 3 right now is the game I am playing. You know, I, I had played it close to the end and got distracted, I think. Never finished it, put it aside for a long time. And then watching the, the series inspired me to start it all over from the beginning. So I'm a, I'm a good chunk of the way through it, but uh, it just reminds me how wonderful that game is. Totally looking forward to, uh, you know, other games from that studio. They have a, they have a cyberpunk game coming out. I want to say maybe the end of this year that I'm super excited to see what they're going to do with. Yeah, that's right. I think they were originally targeting April or May, but unfortunately due to coronavirus, it's been delayed until further notice. But I do remember watching, and for any gamers listening, they released the first 45 minutes, relatively spoiler-free, onto YouTube of gameplay trailer. It looks pretty phenomenal. Sort of a combination of the best parts of the Witcher in terms of narrative-driven storyline, as well as kind of uh, the sci-fi action from the Mass Effect games, in case anyone ever played those. You know, it's, it's interesting. I've seen this trend, you know, sticking on games as we're wrapping this up a little bit. I feel like I've seen a, a trend away from, you know, strong narratives to some of these games that maybe have little or no narrative or in maybe even weak storylines. But then at the same time, there's this emotional attachment we have to games like Witcher that have really strong storylines. Do you, where do you see this trend going? 
Well, unfortunately, I think this is a good example, and, and this is all couched in prior to Witcher. This is a good example of monetization and business models kind of running the games industry. So for a long time, the three main forms of genre that made the most money were, of course, first-person shooters, hence Battlefield and Call of Duty. They were massively online battle arenas, MOBAs, in other words, like League of Legends and Dota. And then thirdly, sandbox games, which I think is what you're referring to. So like the GTAs of the world, the Assassin's Creeds of the world, and those style of games have been so impactful, sandbox games specifically, that they've even taken games that were previously super linear, like the Zelda games, and made those sandboxes. So for anyone who's played Breath of the Wild will know that you can do anything in any order, which is uh, truly remarkable for a Zelda game. Now, why? It's because these games make the most money. And that's fine. You know, folks got to make a living and the industry has to return to its shareholders and, and so on and so forth. But for me personally, the games that I enjoy the most are the ones that are like a fantastic movie or a gripping book. Those like The Witcher or Mass Effect or what I hope the, the, the new cyberpunk cyber project game will be from CD Projekt Red. And I think that what The Witcher has shown, and this is why I was so exciting when the Netflix show did really well, what The Witcher has shown is that there is actually a market for this. People are continuing to buy single-player narrative games, and it doesn't all have to be about shooting everybody or the same old hero arena games. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we could talk about monetization for a while. I'm personally a big fan of both the narrative games you know, like like the say The Witcher, which maybe is a little between the two, and the sandbox games like uh, Zelda: Breath of the Wild. What I don't like is the games that are purely there for monetization, right? That feel like every feature that's put out in, in mobile games are a particular, you know, assault on this, where they're just putting out features purely to see if we can, you know, get people to buy new packs or you know, crystals or whatever the currency that you turn dollars into happens to be uh, without providing real content and gameplay. And it'd be praise on kind of some of those addictive qualities of uh, wanting to win. But we can go into monetization at some other point. That could be a whole topic in and of itself. But, you know, super happy about what uh, CD Projekt Red, what that game design company or what that gaming company is doing, uh, both with Witcher, which I imagine is going to be an ongoing franchise, or continue to be an ongoing franchise and with this new cyberpunk game. Super excited about that. Well, cool, Raul. It's been awesome having you here. Likewise. Thank you for having me again. 